Now, I invite you to turn in the Word of God to Genesis chapter 1. I'll give you a moment to turn there. As you do, perhaps you're visiting this morning, and it'd be helpful to you to know that we're in a series, and we've been looking at a question found in Psalm 8, a timeless question, what is man? So what is human nature? What is our purpose? What is our destiny in light of what the Bible says? And last week, we looked at something that all human beings have in common with everything, literally everything on earth. We saw that we are mere creatures. We're made by God. Everyone is contingent. We owe the Lord for our being, both now and going all the way back. Now, this morning, we're going to look not at something we have in common with all other things on earth, but something that sets us apart from everything else on earth. And that's described for us in one of the creation accounts in the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. Begin with me at verse 24. Let's hear the word of God. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. So in the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing. (coughs) Being beyond time and space, almighty creator, Infinitely wise, having greater compassion than we can comprehend, having justice more pure than anything that we have ever conceived. We thank you for having spoken into history, having given to us not only a revelation of your power and wisdom and righteousness in all that you made, but for having given to us our Father the words of scripture that are faithful and true and for having preserved them by your spirit through your church down through the ages. We ask this morning that you would please lift our hearts up to heaven, that you would help us to receive from you this word which comes to us as food for our souls, this word which comes as light to guide us on a path towards your kingdom. We ask that you would please be honored and that you would preserve us from all error wherever there is ignorance Wherever there is mistake, we pray that you would grant turning of the mind through your power. 
Wherever there is hardness of heart, we pray that you would soften in mercy. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now we are asking the question, what is man? And one way to get at what something is, is to compare it to other things. And certainly there are similarities between human beings and various animals. And I won't belabor that, but if you use your imagination and your memory just a little bit, you can think of different ways that we are like a variety of animals. Think of animals that sleep. Animals that, like us, need food, need air, need water. Some of the behaviors at times can be similar. I'm told that dolphins like to play for the fun of play. I don't know if that's true of ants, but we have something in common then with the dolphin. And then also with the ant in that we work. So we have similarities with all kinds of animate creatures that God has made. However, part of understanding what it means to be a human being is recognizing differences as well. If you do not understand in what ways we are distinct from the other creatures, we will be debased. We will see ourselves as merely animal. And the scripture belabors the point. God goes out of his way in terms of which details he records to make it abundantly clear to anyone with eyes to see that the Lord conceives of human beings as in a different category. In fact, he creates them in a distinct way. And we're going to see this morning that human beings, to be a human, is to be unlike all the other animals in terms of our origin. We are placed in a different category. Why does that matter? To the degree that you afford human beings a distinct nature, origin, category, that will determine how you view them, how you treat them, how you view yourself, how you respond to other people. According to scripture, God not only created us for a different purpose, but in a different way, in a different category of creation. And that's because he has given to us a different destiny and a different set of responsibilities, a different set of capacities. Do we even have to think about this? Absolutely, yes, we do. All around us, particularly in this culture, there is the idea that we are not ultimately distinct from other creatures in terms of the category of our being. You can find differences by degree, people would acknowledge. You know, we are more rational than other creatures. We are in different respects, more creative. But all around you are people who believe that fundamentally we share the same origin as everything else, so we're just a more evolved version of everything else. We don't have an inherent difference to us. Now, what we're going to do this morning is basically two things. We're going to spend most of the time laying out the doctrine of our origin. And even in the time that we have, we cannot possibly go into all that perhaps you wish that we could touch on. That is an immense subject. People fill whole books or whole sets of books on that subject. But we must see basically that there is a difference in the origin of the human species. And then having laid out that doctrine, we're going to spend our concluding time reflecting a little bit on what difference it makes. We'll see it does indeed make a difference. If you view human beings as sharing the same origin as all things or having a different origin in some respect than other things. Now, even when I say that we're going to look at the origin of our species, for some of you, does that ring a bell? Have you heard that phrase? Yes, you have, many of you. 
That's because in the 1850s, a man named Charles Darwin wrote a very, very influential book. It went on to be extraordinarily influential called The Origin of the Species. Note, singular, the origin of the species, plural. One origin for all life. His idea, his thesis, was basically that every living organism on Earth shares descent from a common ancestor. That there is an unguided natural process of adaptation, of natural selection, and that can account for every kind of different life on Earth. Of course, that went off like a bomb in Christian circles, where for millennia, we have been accustomed to thinking of human beings as in a distinct category, with a distinct origin, and of God as having, with intelligence and purpose, created the various creatures on earth. What I need to do then in the first place is set before you again, what does scripture teach? There are many who would try to make these compatible in different ways and to different degrees, to make the idea of evolutionary theory more or less compatible with biblical doctrine. We have to begin at first, what does the scripture say on this? And so let me lay before you the doctrine that to be human is to be unlike other creatures in terms of our origin. And for that, of course, we have to look at Genesis 1 and 2. If you're not familiar with the Bible as a whole, Genesis 1 and 2 have the longest, the clearest accounts of our origins. There are other parts of the Bible that speak to this as well. But Genesis 1 and 2 are really where it all begins. Genesis literally means the beginning. And as we go into Genesis 1 and 2, I want to restate something. I said it last week. It is so important that it bears restating. When we come to any different part of the Bible, which is composed of 66 books written by more than 40 authors over many, many, many centuries, with different sections having different purposes, when we come to any part of the Bible, we have to ask, how was this written? What kinds of literary styles are being incorporated? Who's doing the writing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Who's the audience that's hearing it? Because all of those shape what is being said and what conclusions that we're going to form. It's very important as we do that. Now, I mentioned last week that the primary function of Genesis 1 and 2 is not what some people try to make it to be. People try to make lots of parts of the Bible do many things. What is the primary function of Genesis 1 and 2? If somebody asked you that, would you even be able to give them an answer? I hope that we can give that answer. The primary function of Genesis 1 and 2 and the creation story from the beginning is, in its time and place, but for our time too, a theological polemic. What is that? It's an argument that shapes our beliefs about God and in turn shapes our beliefs about man. I want to be very clear. That does not mean it's not historical or factual. These are not mutually exclusive. But yes, what is the function? Kind of like saying, what's the function of the Gospels? It's not merely to record history and facts. It's to shape your idea about who Jesus is relative to your salvation. And so you need to ask from the beginning, what's the function of the creation story? If you have that in mind, then that helps put up guardrails so you don't drive off into certain dangers. For instance, treating Genesis 1 and 2 like it is merely a scientific textbook to give you answers to every single question that you might have or that a person in the 21st century might have about what process or means God used when he created. There are things, I want to belabor it because I realize there's a whole variety of people in here 
I am not saying or asserting that Genesis 1 and 2 should not be read as factual or historical. However, that does not mean that when God inspired Moses to put these words down, that those who received it were anticipating all the answers to all the questions you might have about how he did this. The text lays out creation according to a week of days. And on the second day, we have one set of events, and on the fourth day, another, and on the fourth day, you have the moon. But on the second day, you have the water, the oceans on the earth. Genesis doesn't answer your question about, is the gravitational influence of the moon, which is exerted upon the tides, already in place before the moon gets there, and then the moon just takes over that role, or is that the first time that the tide begins being pulled? It's not trying to answer your question. It's trying to assert that God created the moon and that he has a purpose. And even the way that those are called lights, and it's the same terminology used in the Old Testament for the lights that are in the tabernacle, showing that God has a temple, which is a place of glory, and all creation is his temple. And he has put for himself the lights that decorate it. Does that mean that he did not make the moon? No, he made the moon. The text is clear. But what's the mechanism and what's the particular way that it influences things? The Bible does not always answer every question that we might have. And so we have to respect the limitations upon it. Now that becomes important as we bring it to the question of our origins. Sometimes people are not nuanced enough when they read Genesis and other parts of the Bible and they compress different categories together. And I want to demonstrate to you an example of this difficulty in relation to our origins. Look with me at verse 25. And even as you hear this, I'll probably draw attention to this multiple times throughout the sermon. A quote from one commentator, he says, Nowhere in the Bible are there any indications, nowhere in the Bible are there any indications that the creation account should be understood in any other way than as a factual report doesn't mean that it says everything you wish, but factual. Verse 25 is very clear. God made the beasts of the earth. So it's not an impersonal force, an impersonal process, but there is intelligence and will, and God is claiming that he is the intelligence and will ultimately behind all these creatures on earth. Very clear. God made the beasts of the earth. Now I ask you, how did he make them? Had you been there at the time, what would, it have, what would that have looked like? I think for a lot of people, if you don't examine this any further than that, perhaps what you picture, maybe what some of you children picture, is that they simply materialized. They simply appeared out of thin air. So, for instance, the dragonfly. One moment it wasn't there, and then suddenly it's going. I want to be clear. That's entirely possible. And if you just laugh at that as impossible, what do you do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? If you laugh, that is impossible. What do you do with the fact that Jesus walks on water? We call them laws because we are ordinarily subject to them. But there's nowhere in the Bible that God says, I am subject to laws of creation. These are merely descriptions of how he as the creator ordinarily conducts things. So God could do that simply by speaking and causing things to materialize. However, is that what the text says? What does the text say? Look at me at verse 24. One verse before gives some clarification for how God goes about making the beasts of the earth. 
Verse 24 says, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures. Let the earth bring forth living creatures. Now the verb there, which we have translated in the ESV, bring forth, is an extremely common Hebrew verb. Let me just give you a sample of this. If you have a Bible open, you can look at these verses. In Genesis 2 verse 10, it says that a river went out from the garden. Same verb, to go forth. The river is going forth. Chapter 4, verse 16, the man Cain went out eastward. Now he's walking, so it can be rivers flowing, it can be legs moving. Genesis 8, verse 7, a raven went out of the ark. That's flight. So it's an extremely common verb that simply means to go away from one place to another place. It can be used in the context of birth. It's broad. Now in the context... I'm going to say something to you that most of you are not, you don't have the training to know on this moment whether what I'm saying is true. But you have tools and I'd be happy to share them with you, the tools that I have. And I'm going to tell you, this Hebrew verb here is in the hifil stem. That is a causative verb. It's a, it basically indicates, to put it very literally, because there's a hofal stem that would be passive, take it like this, let the earth cause to go forth living creatures. That's the nature of the grammar. Let the earth cause to go forth living creatures. What does that mean? At minimum, it means that there's grammatical room that many Christians have looked at this and have said, God, in some sense, made use of the land This is before the living creature, so dead land. God made use of the earth as his agent or instrument to bring forth all the creatures. Grammatically, that is sound. Whether that is theologically sound requires bringing together other things, but grammatically, that is sound. What would that look like? In what sense is, as it says again, read the text with me, let the earth bring forth living creatures. God does it, but he's using the earth in some sense. What does it look like? People have envisioned it different ways. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm sure quite a few of you have, at some point in your life, read C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And there's a passage which has the kind of uh, creation of another world. And there's Aslan, who in C.S. Lewis's allegory is basically Jesus. And Aslan, the lion, begins to sing over this world that has no life in it. And as he sings, the earth begins to shake and mounds appear on the ground and then they open up and out come moles and badgers, sheep. Lewis didn't just make that up out of whole cloth. He's getting that from here. Let the earth bring forth. That God in some way has mediated his creation through something else. Is that what it means? This is one of the key passages as you interact with other Christians and professing Christians who believe in some kind of God-guided evolutionary idea, this is one of the passages that people will lean on, and I do not want you to be ignorant of that, or blindsided when they bring it up. They'll say, does it not say, let earth bring forth the creatures? 
And therefore, God used that. He empowered the earth with certain abilities to bring forth life. And so God gets the credit, but he used these things. Now, I want to quote someone. I don't want to overuse quotes with you, but there are times where other people just say it better than I could. Derek Kidner is a commentator who does hold to a theistic evolutionist perspective, or that's where he leans. But notice what he says about this. He is an expert on Hebrew and an expert on Genesis, and he says, if this language seems well-suited to the hypothesis of creation by evolution, as the present writer does uh, incline, this is not the only scheme that the text or the grammar would allow. And its purpose is not to drop a special clue for the present age. Rather, it is to show that God has bound together all creatures in a common dependence on their native elements. Just for example, he made human beings from the dust, and we are very much in dependence upon an environment that we live in in this age. So he says, they are very much in dependence upon their native elements while giving each the distinctive character of its kind. Each has an origin which is from one angle natural and from another supernatural. And the natural is made self-perpetuating and under God autonomous. One implication is that it is part of godliness to respect the limitations within which we live as natural creatures, as from him. You've been made according to a kind. You respect what you are. God set the boundaries. He made things a certain way. Another is that fertility, so often deified in the ancient world, is a created capacity. God said, let it bring forth. And this comes from the hand of the one God. Again, I want to be clear. I am not personally persuaded of the uh, theistic evolution or that this passage is speaking about it. But when we come to the text, we have to be nuanced and ask it, what is it saying, rather than just bringing everything that we have already kind of populated in our mind to the text. As I mentioned to you, this is often a passage used to say, well, then that must be how God created man. Be equally nuanced in pushing against that because of what it says in verse 26. Whatever this text says about how God created the animals, it is absolutely emphatic he works in a different way with human beings. Notice what it says in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. What is significant about that? Up to this point in Genesis, as you go through the cycle of the days, there is a certain distance placed between, as it were, placed between God and the things he's making. A certain distance, indirectness, where you see in verse 14, God says, let there be light. Let there be light. Now he says, let us make man in our image. Before he says, let them be according to their kinds. Now he says, I'm going to make them in my kind when it comes to the human beings. Verse 24 Let the earth bring forth. But then compare what it says in chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, literally the breath that brings life, and the man became a living creature. In other words, although it's difficult to know exactly what it would have looked like for us to be there, the text 
is emphatic. The ancient reader and the modern reader should be equally aware of what's being underscored here, that when God comes to the formation of human beings, he wants us to make no mistake, they are in a different category and he makes them in a different way. He forms them, as it were, by his own hands. He breathes into them the breath that gives life. Now, does that mean that he formed them with actual physical hands like ours? Did he assume a shape and do these things? The text doesn't answer. When he breathed, did it, was there a, a movement of wind through the air? I don't think the text is trying to answer those questions. It's saying that God has a special purpose and design, and he chooses graciously to set an importance upon humans. He didn't go out looking in the world for what had evolved, and he came to this certain hominid and said, that'll do, I just need to make it spiritual. There are people who read the text in that way, and maybe you're one of them, who read it as though God left a certain process just going, and he knew eventually it would produce something that we would not be able to distinguish from a human, except for it wasn't spiritual. And then what he breathed into it was spirituality. And that's what they make verse 20 to say, as if he breathed into Adam and Adam became religious. Is that what the text says? Look with me at the text again. Verse 7, chapter 2. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Look with me at chapter 1, verse 20. The best commentary on the Bible is, of course, the Bible. Verse 20 of chapter 1, God said, Let the waters swarm with living creatures. Same exact phrase, and no one thinks that the fish in the water are very spiritual. God did not take a living man and make him a spiritual man. He took something that was dead, and he made it a human being who was alive. That's the emphasis of this text. Personally, I have reasons for not subscribing to the evolution of the human species that are reasons from outside the Bible. But the Bible comes first. It has been the ruling of our federation multiple occasions now to put out statements, what we call basically a synod document. And at synod, multiple times now, we've come with the same thing. It is incompatible with our way of interpreting the Bible to take this as meaning anything other than that man is distinct in origin. What did that look like, and why would God work as he does? These are big questions. The first thing we do in that kind of moment where we go, why, Lord, is go back to last week. What was last week? We are creatures, and he doesn't have to tell us everything that we desire to know, but when we are creatures who believe upon him, we can trust He has good reason for what he does. We will see some of that as we go further along in this series. Why does he make humans in a distinct way at a distinct time? What is he setting up prophetically? Much of what God does, he arranges for prophetic purposes. We'll see later on, even male and female, of all the ways he could have made it. And maybe at times you think, ah, why would he do it this way? Men and women. Ephesians 6 says that in part, It was to tell us something about the relationship of Christ and his church and that we would aspire to that in our own lives. But here we see basically the human origin is unlike all others, even if we don't understand it fully. What do we do with that? 
I want to lay before you, by way of conclusion, just to spend some time here reflecting with you. What difference does this actually make? I want to set before you three different ways. Three differences this makes to believe and to affirm that we have an origin unlike all other creatures. Conversely, what effect will it have if you don't? If you waffle on this or if you subscribe to the view that we are fundamentally just like all other creatures on earth. The first is this, and I think it's probably obvious to you. If in this area we do not hold to what has been revealed, it will downgrade our estimate of scripture as authoritative, as reliable, as historical. That is not to say that there are not parts of scripture that are, by their very nature, using pictures that are symbolic, of course. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, is called the Lamb. He is not literally a lamb, but he is the Lamb. But when we come to Genesis, as I read before, nowhere in the Bible are there any indications that the creation should be understood in any other way than as a factual report. Otherwise, we reduce it to mere mythology. And that has the effect of cutting out from under them our confidence in people like, say, the apostles and the prophets, who treat Adam as a historical person and as the first of his kind. We are in Advent season, and at some point, I'm sure you're going to hear part of the genealogy in Luke, Luke chapter 2, where it traces humanity back from people who were well-known in the time of Luke all the way to Adam. You say, how could they have records that good? You, you only need God to know, and for a God who inspires. But at what point, if Adam is a mythological figure there for, to inspire our understanding of our spiritual nature, if that's what he is, if he's not historical, at what point did Luke get a little bit mistaken? At what point did it become myth? Luke is approved by the apostles for his writings. We recognize his writings as canonical. How much more Jesus in Matthew chapter 19 when he treats Adam as a historical figure says, have you not read, this is Jesus speaking, Matthew 19, 4 and 5, have you not read that Jesus who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He treats the Genesis account as historical. And therefore, the first danger is that when you push aside and say, maybe we have the same origin, it's, maybe we shouldn't take Genesis in this way, what are you saying about Jesus? By observation, this has been for many people the first step towards what is now being called deconstruction, where you come to doubt everything that you believe. I don't believe that deconstruction is a purely intellectual exercise. I do believe it is very much a moral exercise where people have reasons that are not rational necessarily for why they choose to turn away from the Christian faith and not ask certain questions. But this is a first and major reason. The second is that it damages our view of Christ. I've already said it damages our confidence that he knows what he's talking about. We believe he's God. We believe he was there. And so when he speaks of Adam as historical... To say otherwise is to doubt him. But it also damages our view of Christ as the Savior. In time, some of you younger people here, maybe some of you children or a newer Christian, in time you're going to become more familiar with the Bible. And you'll come to passages like Romans chapter 5, 
which speaks of Jesus as the second Adam. The second Adam. Or 1 Corinthians 15 or Philippians chapter 2 that all say that in some sense God intentionally formed human history in a way so that Jesus would live in parallel to Adam in important ways. They both have a miraculous origin. They both stand as federal representatives for all whom they represent. Their obedience will become other people's obedience. Their disobedience will become other people's guilt. Christ has no such disobedience, and that's the only reason why we can have a Savior. The the foundations of our theology of Christ and of salvation begin to erode when we mess with this one part of doctrine. Finally, it's this, and I said it at the very beginning of the sermon. If you lose the doctrine of our unique origins... The tendency is to distort our view of human dignity. The tendency when you view all species as essentially just the same but by gradations of ability is to collapse human ethics into just a general ethics and to treat people as such. I quote one, this is an Indian philosopher named Sri Aurobindo who's representative of this view. And tell me, does it not appeal in a certain sensibility to maybe something even you believe? Because we live in a, in a certain culture. We're affected by this. He says, life is life, whether in a cat or a dog or a man. There is no difference between a cat or a man. The idea of difference is a human conception for man's own advantage. Mr. Orobindo. I'd like to know, if you have a toddler and you're expecting a package and the delivery driver comes to your house and you open the door and by your side is both a toddler and your cat and the delivery driver chooses to kick one or the other, you really think that these are the same. We have an intuition that's hard to rationalize in a humanistic way of thinking because it's transnatural, it's supernatural in origin. Having been created according to the image of the living God, we have an intuition that human beings somehow do have a greater inherent dignity and value than animals. That's not a license to drop the ball of stewardship. We'll come to that later down the road in the series. It's not a license to treat animals poorly. Proverbs 12, verse 10 says, A righteous man regards the life of his beast. But it does mean there's a difference. And the person who tries to say, Well, I think the consequence should be the same, whether or not the harm is done to the animal versus to the human, is suppressing, suppressing intuition. Beware that person. These are not ethics that will lead to the flourishing of human society. Ironically, the way to have better treatment of the animals if that is what you're going for, is to have an elevated view of human responsibility because we are different. You can expect more of a human because we're not an animal. It comes back again to how does God view us? God in his goodness condescended to make something for himself which is distinct. You get to be a part of that. That's extraordinary. Had he willed in a manner of speaking, you wouldn't be you if he had made you a rock or a dog. But had he chosen, he could have made you something else. But he didn't. And he's given you this origin that's different in part to make it so clear to you 
You have a different purpose. Lord willing, in the next sermon, we'll look at what that purpose is. But at this time, let's ask the Lord to give us what he desires. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for having created all things according to your purpose. There are so many questions, perhaps, that different individuals here have about what it looked like when you made all things. But we submit and we do so with awe, Lord, as we consider Genesis and your power over all. And we ask that you would please give to us a greater appreciation for your mercy in having made a kind of being that it can enter into relationship with you, can knowingly serve you. We thank you for having given to us a redeemer who took on our nature in order to redeem us from the very ways in which we tried not to be like you. We ask that you would help us to communicate these things winsomely and with effectiveness to those outside. Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.